Ours is a passionate faith, guys, and I think that when the gospel captures us, it captures our minds, it captures our hearts, it captures and it calls forth, incidentally, also our passions to give the whole of ourselves to it. And we find almost no better example of that than the Apostle Paul, whose writings we continue to study again today. So we've been studying through the book of 2 Corinthians. Last week, we looked together at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And since today is really just a continuation of that conversation, let me remind you of what we saw. We saw that the Apostle Paul went to Corinth and he planted a church in Corinth on the key phrase, true gospel. Having done that, he left. But then sometime after he left, some other preachers and teachers showed up, at least allegedly with all kinds of credentials in regard to their teaching, and teaching a different kind of a gospel, a false gospel as Paul called it. And it was different in terms of this issue of obedience. In other words, Paul planted this church on the true gospel, which mathematically speaking looks something like this. Jesus and his perfect life of obedience lived in our place, and then his sufferings and death died to pay the penalty for all of our imperfections and sins, and his resurrection from the dead, by which God the Father said, I accept that sacrifice on behalf of any who put their faith and trust in him. Okay, Jesus plus nothing added at all by me equals what? Well, we've been talking about it. It equals forgiveness. It equals life. It equals cleansing. It equals wholeness. It equals healing. It equals God's favor, God's love, God's heaven, God's family, and that he brings us into his family as his sons and daughters. It is entirely accomplished by Christ, and it's gained by me me when I go, wow, I can't do that. And I need that. And I trust that, you know what? Jesus is who he says that he is, and he's accomplished, in fact, for me, what he claims to have accomplished. And then the Lord just says, here, then that's yours. It's the free gift of faith, and our obedience flows out of that. Not to add anything, but as the response of worship, because that captures the whole of us. It gathers us up in every aspect of our lives. It's the fruit of the reality that that kind of a change has occurred in here. It's not what brings the change. The change brings the obedience. So anyway, that's the gospel of Paul. Mathematically, Jesus plus nothing added by me equals all of that stuff. He plants the church with that. He leaves. And then these other guys show up and they go, no, 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 Paul's math is a little off. So it goes really like this. It is Jesus, yes, plus Obedience added by me equals all of those things. And last week, Paul really took that to task. Like he said, no, 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 you don't understand. That is a false gospel. And as such, it is a gospel of death versus the gospel of life. It is a gospel of condemnation. That's what it brings to you when you try to win God's favor through your obedience versus a gospel of freedom and of joy, of knowing that you've been set free through faith in Christ, through His work on your behalf. And he said, look, there are at least two problems with this false gospel of death and condemnation. Problem number one is, how in the world can you add anything to the finished work of Jesus Christ? I mean, if indeed Christ is God, and if indeed having lived the life of perfect obedience and then suffered and just before he died, he said, it is finished. He didn't say, it's mostly finished. It's almost done. And, you know, if you could just finish off that last tiny little bit, we're good. He said, it is finished. And when you and I are trying to win his favor and earn his love and, you know, sort of purchase his heaven and buy our way into his family by living in a particular way, consciously or subconsciously, what are we saying? We're saying, Jesus, I think that must have been a stressful moment for you there when you said that, because I think you misspoke. 
It's not finished. I've got to finish it. No. No, it's finished. That's it. Problem number two. If you have to add something to the finished work of Jesus, and you have to do that by being obedient to the law of God, well, then you're doomed. Because the standard of obedience that he holds us to when we come to the law of God, hey, you know what, I'm going to obey your law and purchase my way into your house. Okay, great. Then here's the standard. It's not how you look vis-a-vis -vis your neighbor or our culture or next to the person sitting next to you or any of those other things. It's how do you compare with me, God? So our God, we're told in His holiness, is a consuming fire, okay? So hope you are too, if that's the plan. It doesn't work. Thus, it's a gospel of death. Thus, it's a gospel of condemnation. And having established that, he then moved to the topic of glory. And that's really where he spent most of his time. He said, I want to go back. I want to look back in the book of Exodus. I want to go back to the old covenant containing the law, the Ten Commandments. And I want you to see something about its glory. I want you to see that it was a fading glory. And we were like, well, what are you talking about? It's a fading glory. He's like, yeah, you know the story. Look at the story. Remember Moses, he goes up onto Mount Sinai. He spends 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of the Lord receiving the law. He asks the Lord, can I see your glory? And the Lord says, okay, listen, I'm going to grant your request, but here's what I'm not going to let you see. I'm not going to let you see my face. He comes down off of the mountain carrying the stone tablets, literally engraved with the Ten Commandments. And unbeknownst to him, as we said last week, his face is literally glowing with the glory of God, having spent that time in his presence. And it kind of freaks people out. And so he veils his face for understandable reasons, but that's not the only reason. He veils his face, as Paul pointed out last week, because he recognizes something from the very beginning of this thing called the Old Covenant, and that is that the glory on his face, the deliverer of the covenant, the one who more than anyone else is associated with it, is fading. It's diminishing. It's dying. It's passing away. Good grief. From the beginning, it was a diminishing, dying, fading covenant. It's telling you from the beginning that it's going to give way to a new covenant. One, as Paul has indicated, with never-ending, never-fading glory. So he talked about glory, and then he brought it home to us and said, okay, here's the deal. If you're a believer in Jesus, here's your mission. It's to go out into the world full of people that need to see what real glory looks like and to show them the glory of Jesus. Not on your face, but with the whole of your life. And so as we pick up that conversation now at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul's going to get a little more specific. And here's what he's going to say. He's going to say that the glory of Jesus is oftentimes best seen by us and by other people through us. You ready? In our weaknesses as opposed to our strengths. In our sorrows as opposed to our joys. In our sufferings as opposed to those seasons of life in which everything else, I mean, seems to be going really well for us. Hey, right on. How is everything authentically good? Okay. Oftentimes, the glory of Jesus is best seen in us and our sufferings. Or to just state it a little bit differently, we look most like Jesus when our earthly lives look most like the earthly life of Jesus, who though he was almighty God, guys, became weak so that we might know his almighty power. Who though he knew nothing but infinite joy, walked this life as one of us, as a man of sorrows, that we might know his joy. 
though he knew nothing but comfort, though he knew nothing but life, and infinitely so, suffered and died so that through faith in him we might know eternally so his infinite comforts, his infinite joy, his infinite power, and his infinite life. So we look most like Jesus when our earthly lives look most like Jesus. And if that freaks you out a little bit, I understand that because nobody goes looking for this stuff. Hey, sign me up for the weakness. You know, I think I'll do that this week. You know, that sounds good. Sorrow, I love that. Suffering, bring it on. But think about this for a minute. We're broken people. We live in relationships with broken people. We live in a world full of broken people, corrupted in every way, really. We're going to get it anyway. But for the Christian, it's different. For the Christian, it comes to us from the sovereign hand of our Lord, by His design, and for His, not our, His glory. And here's what we have the opportunity to do. We can complain about it, we can resent it, we can resist it, we can you know, push it away, or what we can do is embrace it as coming from the hand of our Lord and to say, okay, Lord, I am going to trust you hour by hour, minute by minute, day by day to give me the power to live through this, to categorize this, to gain the right perspective on this, and to use this as the very vehicle by which to reveal your power, your glory, and to move forward your purposes in a world full of people that need to see God's people deal with weakness, deal with sorrows, and deal with suffering differently. Differently. It's an opportunity. It really is. And it comes to us from the Lord, which is a different message than I think we often and typically hear in the Christian community. And I think that's unfortunate. I think that there are pastors and book writers and conference speakers and all of that stuff that are traveling all over the place. And there's a lot of people listening. And, and what are they saying? They're saying, no, 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 no. The, the Lord's design for you is happiness. And the Lord's design for you is health. And the Lord's design for you is for all of your financial stuff to work out. And so you'll be fabulously wealthy. And the Lord's design for you is never to suffer. That's not the Lord's design. And I just want to take their book and I want to lay it down next to the life of Jesus and ask them, how does this square exactly? Because I'm not seeing it. Oh, that's not convincing enough. Okay, lay it down next to Paul. Lay it down next to Peter. Lay it down next to James. Lay it down next to John. Just work your way down the list all the way through to today. No. Sometimes we are weak. Sometimes we are sorrowful. Sometimes we endure seasons of suffering and not because God is absent but because God is present and because there is something bigger at stake than our comfort and that something bigger at stake is His glory. And incidentally, even as our lives follow the pattern of Jesus in this world in that regard at times, they will follow the pattern of Jesus throughout eternity too. And that's not to be forgotten because Jesus' life does not end in suffering and death. It ends in resurrection and eternal glory. And that too is for us. That too he has purchased and he purposes for us. So if you have those books, I would encourage you to burn them so not even the garbage man can read it. And I'm about that much joking. Really, because it's not Christian. It's in alignment with a false gospel that says, hey, you know what? Because of my efforts or because of this, or if I do that, if I do this, or I pray this way, I, I somehow deserve better. 
No, we get everything. Grace, mercy, anything we deserve all comes from Jesus. It's what He deserves that we get. It's amazing. So with all of that in mind, we pick up our study today and continue this conversation in 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 1, where Paul says this. He says, therefore, we have this ministry, meaning this ministry of the true gospel, this ministry of the new covenant, this ministry of never-ending, never-fading glory as opposed to the old covenant. We have this ministry, he says, by the mercy of God. And now notice what he says next. He says, we do not lose heart. And you say, well, why in the world would the Apostle Paul of all people ever be tempted to lose heart? The answer is very simple, because his life looked a lot like the life of Jesus. And as such, Paul lived in an almost constant state of weakness. He took into his heart and soul again and again and again and again an almost constant flow of sorrows. He lived in the midst of a river of suffering. And he did it all so that others might know the true gospel. But here's what's begun to happen in Corinth. These other guys who have shown up with the false gospel, the one of death and condemnation, are now looking up at Paul's weaknesses, and they're looking at his sufferings, and they're looking at his sorrows, and they're gathering all of those things up, and they're putting them on display in front of these people at Corinth, and they're using them actively against Paul. In other words, they're saying, hey... What's with all this stuff? Like if this guy is really the spokesperson of God, if this guy is really the apostle with the true gospel, if that's his claim, if that's who he authentically is, what's with all the weakness? What's with all the sorrows? Why, unlike us, does he suffer the way that he does? No, they're saying, if Paul's life gives evidence of anything, it is to the absence of God and not to his presence. And here's the problem. When life doesn't go so well for us, we do exactly the same thing. We resent the Lord because we think we should get better. We deserve better, but why do we deserve better? Look at all that I do. Oh, there it is. But Lord, I, I do this, and, and I give this, and I serve in this way, and I, I've done this, and I, I'm doing my personal worship, and I pray, and I... Haven't I purchased from you a better kind of life, a better kind of day, just give me a day, than this one? Isn't that what I deserve? And the Lord's like, no, 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 no. You don't want what you deserve. You want what Christ deserves. And that is the free gift to you. Through faith in Him, He has earned eternity for you. And part of your mission is to embrace this. And to embrace it as an opportunity for Him to advance His kingdom in you. And as others witness the power by which you get through minutes, by which you get through hours, by which you get through days, and then they add up to weeks, and then weeks add up to months, and then months add up to years, they come to see His power too. And so Paul says, look, the problem is with your expectations. He says to these guys, you expect something different? That's crazy. He said, so let's deal with your expectations. And we're going to get to suffering in a second and spend most of our time there, he says, but first... Since you guys, these preachers in Corinth, insist on obeying the law, and since the law insists on some pretty fundamental things like honesty and truthfulness and transparency and humility, let me unmask you. Let's compare our lives, Paul says, and let's start with those kinds of things. And he's not doing it to be contentious. He's very strong, as we'll see in a second. I mean, he's about as subtle as a hammer, okay? But he's, he's not doing it 
to be contentious. He's a preacher of the gospel. He's trying to get these guys to see that, no, no, no. You too need to come to faith in Jesus. And so he says, verse 2, but we, meaning I, Paul, and my little band of brothers that I'm planting churches with, have renounced some things, the point being that you peddlers of this false gospel have clearly not renounced, as evidenced by the witness of all these people around you. They ought to be able to see it. And what are those things? Well, things like disgraceful and underhanded ways. That's subtle. And more than that, he says, unlike you, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but instead, by the open statement of the truth, total transparency, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Let them compare us with you. Let God compare us with you. And know this, he says, that even if our gospel is veiled, at least to you guys, okay, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In fact, in their case, he says, in the case of the perishing, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the what? Because it's a key word. It's the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is what? In the Greek word, it's, it's the word icon. He is the image of God. For what we proclaim, as opposed to what you guys are proclaiming, is not ourselves. You guys are coming and saying, oh, you need to be righteous like us. Paul's going, yeah, I don't know. We're unrighteous. What we need is Jesus. He says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And then he takes us all the way back to the first page of the Bible, to the story of creation. And he says, let me tell you from that story what needs to happen in your heart. He said, for the God who in that story said, let light shine out of darkness. The first recorded words of the Lord, let there be light. And there was. What does he need to do? He needs to speak in that same creative capacity into our hearts. He needs to shine. He says He has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. And here's where Paul learned all of this stuff. He learned it through his own conversion. I mean, if you don't know that much about the Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, he was known as Saul of Tarsus. And far from being a proclaimer of the true gospel, he was a persecutor of the true gospel. He was a proclaimer, much like these guys in Corinth, that now he's taking the task of obedience to the law of God, and very passionately so. And so Paul was engaged in this mission of hunting Christians down and seeking to stamp out the true gospel anywhere that he could find it. And Luke gives us, however, then his conversion and how that changed in Acts 9, beginning in verse 1, where he says this, he says, but Saul, that's Paul, still breathing, that's kind of a cool word, threats and murder, so not mild things, against the disciples of the Lord. Why is that a cool word, breathing? Because when your kids are born, guys, before you start counting fingers and toes, you want to see that they breathe. It's a sign of life. It represents life. All of us will one day come to the end of our lives, and with our final expiration of breath, we'll expire, will we not? So when Luke is telling us, he's an artist, he says, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the Lord's disciples. He's telling us that Saul lived to stamp out Christianity wherever he could find it. And so then he went to the high priest in the city of Jerusalem, to whom the Roman government had given certain civil authorities, like arresting people, abusing people. 
And he asked them, the high priest, for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, actually north of the northernmost outpost of Israel in modern-day Syria, so that if he could find any belonging to the way, any Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem, arrested is the idea. But then we read, now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a what? Because it's the word I told you to look for. A light, as in the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, literally in the face of of Jesus Christ, in this case, a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground in this light. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, which is a remarkable statement because of the Jewish ear, he would have understood that to be a statement of endearment. He would have understood that to be a statement that implied unity, oneness, intimacy, love. This is not an angrily stated thing. God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, Abraham. He appears to Moses at the burning bush. Moses, Moses, David's son Absalom dies. And he says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. He loves his son. The Lord loves Paul. It's fascinating. It is truly a gospel of free grace. And so he says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, which if you're Saul is kind of weird because you're thinking, yeah, I don't even know who you are, you know. I mean, like I got this folder full of people that I'm persecuting, names and addresses and pictures, and none of them has a face that shines like the face of the sun. So I'm pretty sure I would remember if I had encountered you and you're not on my list of people to visit. You know what? I'll leave you out. You know, it's a, and so Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And then Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And I want you to think for a minute, just consider some of the things that Saul learned from that statement right there, because it's profound. It fleshes out so much of his theology. I mean, he learned, for example, that these people that he'd been hunting down and persecuting and who were not keeping the law of God as he prescribed and said it must be kept were actually the true people of the true Messiah, which means... That salvation actually is not found through the keeping of the law. But it must be through faith alone in Jesus who kept the law for us and then suffered and died for all the ways that we have violated it. He learned, for example, that since salvation is not found by keeping the law and since that law had clearly marked a people, that is to say ethnic Israel, well, then the gospel must be available outside of ethnic Israel. It might be available to, to Gentiles as well. He learned that. And he learned that since the persecution of Christians, and this is profound, is at the same time the persecution of Jesus, well, then there must be an intimate union between us and Jesus, something maybe on the order of a body to the head of the body. That becomes one of the primary metaphors for the church. He comes to us and says, hey, let me tell you who we collectively are as the people of God. We are the body of Christ, and each one of us individually are parts of that body. And we're all of us connected to each other, but this is the really helpful piece for me. We're all of us connected to the head who is Christ. And so then when the hand suffers, the head is not disinterested. The head is not disconnected. The head is not failing to take notice of it. The head, just like every other part of the body, is suffering alongside of it. And so we learned this, or we're reminded of it, this past Friday night. So our daughter Haley, who's a senior in high school, who's here, so she's going to love this, went with these guys all sitting over here. 
to some place called Off the Wall. I don't know what Off the Wall is. I do now know that it has trampolines. So I know that. And that you must sign a waiver for good reason, apparently. So anyway, we get a call at like 10.30 and, you know, Haley is you know, kind of crying and she's talking to Beth and I'm standing there thinking I, I'd like to go to bed 10 minutes ago. And, and Haley hurt her, her foot or her leg and maybe she sprained her ankle. And, you know, what do you think? And I thought, well, I don't know, maybe she did. But I mean, Haley is, is a little bit dramatic. And um, so like when she was a little girl, if she got a splinter, I mean, it was let's sit down and fill out the will because clearly this is the end, you know? And, and so I'm sort of filtering it through that and I'm thinking, I don't know, is it really that big of a deal? You know, tell her to shake it off. She's like, I don't know, she's actually icing it. They're putting ice on it. And I thought, huh, all right, well, you know, and she's like, well, should I tell her to come home, not come home? I'm like, no, tell her to go enjoy the rest of the retreat. I'm sure it's not that bad. Oh, she's really upset. All right, so I change, Beth changes, we drive over to the church, you know, they're carrying her off the bus, and I'm thinking, oh, really, you know, <laughs> carrying her? Honey, just walk, you know, and then I saw it, and I thought, that is not a sprain. So we went directly to the hospital, and she broke her fibula, apparently, and uh, so now she's on crutches. It's a right foot, so now she can't drive for the next six weeks. So everybody wins. <laughs> Just wonderful. We're all excited about that. So here's what I noticed. The foot, the ankle, the farthest appendage from the head in your body is unequivocally attached to the face, to the head, to the eyes. It's a good reminder, because when we suffer, when we experience weakness, when we go through seasons of sorrow, you know, we don't always consciously feel the presence of the Lord. Sometimes we do, and what a great gift it is. But the head is not disconnected from even the farthest appendage, guys. He's not unfeeling in this. He's very much with you. Another thing that Paul learned through this statement is that Jesus, oh, incidentally, actually is the true Messiah. And not only that, that he's the icon, that he is the image, that he is himself the face of Almighty God, the face that God would not show to Moses on Mount Sinai. God, through Christ, showed to Paul here on the Damascus Road. Paul learned also, by the way, that in order to see all of this, it actually takes a sovereign creative act of God. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, must in our hearts shine the light of his gospel. And when he does, you cannot unsee it. You do not miss it. And then lastly, I think that Paul learned that the glory of Jesus is oftentimes best seen by us and through us by other people. Yeah, in our weaknesses, in our sorrows, in our sufferings, we look most like Christ when our lives are earthly ones. Okay, also look more like the earthly life of Jesus. And I say that because in this narrative, here's what Jesus says about Paul in verse 15. He says, let me describe Paul to you. And here comes his ministry. Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. How? By what means? What must he endure to do that? For I will show him, he says, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name, which means ironically that far from disqualifying his ministry, his weaknesses, his sorrows and sufferings authenticated it. 
He lays his life down even after the pattern of the one who laid his life down. It's the very means by which, again and again, the Lord uses to advance his gospel in and through Paul and into the world. And so it is with us when we realize, oh, that's what this is all about. And we embrace it as such. Which seems to me to be the point that Paul continues now to make in 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 7. He says, For we have this treasure of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In what? In jars of clay. What is that a reference to? Our bodies, our mortal bodies and our mortal lives. You're like, well, good grief. Why would the Lord want to display, want to contain, want to pour forth something so incredibly precious from something as common as this, from something as fragile as this, from something as weak as this, from something as, relatively speaking, inexpensive as this? You know, we don't put Monet in a cheap wood frame. Why would the Lord do this? Here's the answer. To show that the surpassing power of the true gospel belongs to God and not to us. To display His power through our weakness, through our sorrows and sufferings. And so to that end, Paul says, and now notice this and look for but not, okay? He says, we are afflicted in how many ways? In every way. That's our existence, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed right now, he says, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but don't miss this, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. And what strikes me about that whole statement is the but not. It's the focus of Paul. Instead of focusing on what he's experiencing, which doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun to me, he's focused on what he has yet been spared from. And for that, he is thankful. In other words, he's afflicted in every way, but he's not crushed. And he's like, right on God. Thank you for that. He's perplexed, but he's not driven to despair. He's like, we can do a worship song just all about that. He's persecuted, but he's not forsaken. And he is unspeakably appreciative. He's struck down, but not destroyed. And the not destroyed piece is what he's focused on. And I just point that out because I don't know if it's your tendency, but I think it is mine. I think that when we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed and perplexed, but not driven to despair and persecuted, but not forsaken and struck down, but not destroyed. Yeah, we're not thinking about the but not part. We're just thinking about getting out of the afflicted in many ways, perplexed part. And here's what else we're not. We're not thankful. And we're not seeing this for what it is. An opportunity to proclaim God's power. It's where he goes next, beginning in verse 10. He says, we, meaning all of these guys, we're, we're always carrying, he says, in the body, our bodies, these mortal bodies, these clay pots, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus, here's the purpose, also may be manifested in our bodies as we suffer for him by his power in ways that proclaim and bring him glory. For we who live are always being given over to death of all kinds, I would say, for Jesus' sake. That's the purpose. Paul gave away a lot to become the Apostle Paul, at least in terms of the way that we look at a lot. This guy was an upwardly mobile guy, brilliant, brilliant man, educated at the feet of probably the most famous rabbi of his generation. This man was climbing the corporate ladder of the religious hierarchy in Israel, and that was a big deal. It had all kinds of wonderful ramifications. And he died to the whole of it. And then in the end, 
This will really encourage you. He was decapitated for preaching the gospel. Does that make you happy? You say, well, where's the power of God in that? Well, let me say it again. He was decapitated for preaching the gospel. Where's the power of God in that? Here's the power of God in that. Just like every other apostle, with the possible exception of one, when confronted with the choice of, we're going to cause you to die an excruciatingly torturous death, or you can recant this whole true gospel thing and deny what you've seen. He said, no, nah, go ahead. You can have my head. It's all good. And for 2,000 years, people like me and hopefully people like you have stood around going, man, I'm pretty sure these guys saw a risen Jesus. It authenticates in so many ways everything that they've left behind for us in the New Testament. So death is at work in us, he says. But as a result of the fact that death is at work in us, life is at work in you. Who does life does that sound like? I'm going to go with Jesus. He dies that we might have life. He's replicating the life of Christ in his own ministry. And then he concludes, he says, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written in the Psalms, and it's a quote, quote, I believed and so I spoke. He said, here's what we need you guys to know. We also believe, and so we also speak. And even if that costs us our life in the end, we will continue to speak, knowing that what? That he who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will raise us also with Jesus upon his return and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake that we endure various weaknesses and sorrows and sufferings, so that as grace extends to more and more and more and more people through our sacrifices, through our refusals to be quiet, through the way that we suffer and they see God's power in us, it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. Guys, the glory of Jesus is oftentimes best seen by us and others in our weakness, in our sorrows, in our suffering, in those seasons of life in which our earthly lives look most like His. So then what do you do with that? I think what you do is you gather up your weaknesses, sorrows, and suffering, and you put them before Him. You recognize that they belong to Him and that they are here to serve His purposes. That life is not about me and it's not about you, and we've been purchased by Christ. We belong to Him, and He can do with us what He will. And what He will do is redeem the whole of those things and reward you for all eternity for them. But you work it through. And you ask questions like these. Am I looking at my weaknesses and sorrows and sufferings and saying, Lord, as your servant, I expect better than this. And here's why. Because of all that I do. Or am I embracing these things as the very means by which God is seeking to show forth his power and presence in my life? To me and to others. Because that's a true gospel versus a false gospel response. Secondly, what am I focused on in the midst of my suffering? Is it just what God has not yet delivered me from? Or do I have an eye that also sees all the things that, well, that he has delivered me from? Thirdly, since Paul died in many ways that others might find life, in what ways am I dying? 
Because that's following Jesus, right? Death to self that you might live to Him. It's sacrifice. It's I carry around in some sense in, in my body the death of Jesus that others might have the life of Jesus. So how is that happening in my life? How is that happening in my career? How is that happening in my family? How is that happening? How is God using death by me to bring life to other people? And lastly, am I viewing my weaknesses and sorrows and sufferings through the lens of the resurrection? Because one of the repeating mantras of Paul, maybe the primary one, is that this life is not the only life there is. If it is, then none of this makes any sense, and we should all go to lunch. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, he said in his last letter to the Corinthians. But it's not the only life there is. And when forced with having to say, all right, Paul, you can stick with that and lose your head and literally enter into the next life, or you can keep your head and stop saying this and, in fact, turn around and tell everybody that you've made the whole thing up. He said, yeah, you know what? I'm going all in on the next life. So take the head. It's not the only life there is. And even as at times our lives follow the pattern of the life of Jesus, which will include weaknesses, sorrows, and sufferings, that he'll redeem. Jesus' life doesn't end in death. It ends in resurrection and eternal glory. And that part of the pattern is ours too. And that too is His grace. So are you viewing these things through the lens of the resurrection? Because it's through that lens that in the midst of these things, you come to understand them and you have the hope by which to endure. So chew on that. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for our Savior. We thank you for the suffering servant, for the man of sorrows. We thank you for the one who, though he was omnipotent, became weak, who, though he knew nothing but joy, became that man of sorrows, who, though, Lord, he knew nothing but comfort and life. God, he endured suffering and death that we might know your power, that we might know your joy, and that for all of eternity we might bask in your comfort and enjoy life everlasting as you design in your goodness and grant it to us freely. We thank you for one who has done everything that we cannot and that we have not done. And we praise you, Lord, that we have the opportunity to redeem our sufferings and difficulties in this life by giving them to you too and watching what you do with it all, not just through us, but in us as well. So advance your gospel in and through us, through our weaknesses and difficulties too, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.